0: Before we jump in, let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer, and then we will consider uh, our passage for this morning that Joanna just read for us. Let's pray. Well, Father God, we thank you that we can come before you and gather, that we can gather as your people, that we can gather around your word, that we can submit ourselves to what your word has to say. Lord, both good and difficult things that we need to consider. Father, I do pray that as we approach this passage this morning, that you would pour out your Spirit upon us. For those who have known you, have walked with you for many years, Lord, may today be a refreshment, a a, a, a refreshing experience of the hope that is to be found in Christ. For those that do not know you, Lord, we pray that today would be the day that they repent and put their faith and trust in you. Oh, Father, I do pray that as we walk away from this passage today, we would walk away praising and glorifying your name. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Is life fair? I mean... How would you answer that? As you sit here this morning, could you say that you have really experienced ongoing fairness in your life? What do I mean? Well, would you say that the way that people view you or the the way that people treat you is fair and equal? Do you earn based more on the country that you come from or the passports or the culture that you come from rather than on your skill set? Have there been experiences where you've, circumstances where you've experienced this a, a degree of unfairness, missing out on an opportunity because of someone's wasta, missed out on a promotion, missed out on a flight upgrade? Visa applications being denied, travel plans ruined. You feel that it's unfair having a passport that doesn't give you the same freedoms as others. You feel it's unfair your salary is less compared to someone with the same experience and skill set as you. There are various circumstances that cause us to question what is fair and what isn't. We can feel morally wronged if something doesn't appear to be fair or equal. And when we see someone who seems to be cheating the system, benefiting from this dishonesty, from some underhandedness, that can leave us outraged, crying out, God, how can this be? We all have a moral compass when it comes to what we think is fair or unfair, when it comes to what we think is right or wrong. And as we'll see in our passage this morning, God's people during the time of Malachi have a very strong opinion of what they believe to be right and wrong. And they aren't afraid to let God know their thoughts. So if you haven't already done so, please open in your Bibles to Malachi, starting at chapter 2, verse 17. And we're going to be looking at three points today that's going to serve as our outline. So if you're taking notes, three points. The first point is the just Lord, chapter 2, verse 17. The second point, the coming Lord, chapter 3, verse 1 to chapter 3, verse 5. And then the third point, the unchanging Lord, chapter 3, verse 6 to verse 15. The just Lord, the coming Lord, the unchanging Lord. Now, over the past two weeks, we've we've seen this back and forth between God and uh, and the people uh, through the prophet Malachi. Through that, we've seen this engagement with the people with the priests. God has held out various charges of sin towards them, from their polluted offerings and their disregard for the Levitical covenant to their faithlessness shown towards one another. The last charge we saw against them last week was how they had been pursuing foreign gods and and broken their marriage covenants and were divorcing their wives. Now remember, we're in this post-exilic period. They have returned from exile. The temple had been rebuilt. The duties were being fulfilled, but in a very unworthy manner. And with the completion of the the, the temple, decade after decade, it had been around 84 years since the temple had been finished. Nothing seems to have changed. There didn't appear to be any supernatural event that would suggest that the Lord's presence had now returned. But whereas before there was this pointing out of the, the sin of the people and their objections to God about how He viewed their actions... Malachi now deals with a seemingly different scenario. People were looking at the wickedness that seemed to be all around them. And they began to question God. We get to verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, How have we wearied him? By saying, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them. Or by asking, Where is the God of justice? This argument that people are bringing is now seemingly leaving God somewhat weary. Now, we know that God does not get tired, but what point is is Malachi trying to make here? He's saying that the people's constant complaining, constant charges against God are tiresome. Now, it's interesting to note that as we think of their actions wearing the Lord, nowhere are we told that God is tired or weary with human prayers, or with questions. However, this idea of being weary is only mentioned in connection with our sin. You hear these words from Isaiah 43 verse 24, You have not brought me sweet cane with money, or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins, you have wearied me with your iniquities." You have wearied the Lord, wearied Him with your words. This is another charge, just as we've seen throughout this this book so far, and just as we've seen before, a very similar response. Not one of repentance, not one of coming before the Lord. Instead of a humble heart, we get another prideful response. Well, how have we wearied you? Show us. Prove it to us, God. To which the prophet responds by saying, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. Or he delights in them. Or by asking, Where is the God of justice? God, look around. The people are wicked. They're doing evil things. They are corruptible. How can we be the ones who are making you wary? And we can assume from what we saw last week and some of the stuff that we see a bit later on that there was a lot of people not keeping the law, they were worshiping idols. And there's a number of things that that they were doing that would have been against God. And yet, these wicked people who are doing these actions seem to be prospering. Instead of being punished, the people have determined that God sees those who do evil as doing good, as being good in His sight. And therefore, they accuse God of delighting in these wicked people. God, this isn't fair. It's not fair. They're defiling your name. They don't honor you. They don't keep your covenant. Why aren't you doing anything? Because you're not doing anything, well, then you must see them as good. You must be delighting in them. Otherwise, that's not how you would respond. I mean, in the people's eyes, they've, they've kept up their side of the bargain, as it were. They would know that in Deuteronomy 28, if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all His commands that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. So, if they obeyed, the, if they obeyed God, kept His law, then they would prosper and benefit. And in their mind, that's exactly what they're doing. And yet, they didn't seem to be the blessings that they were expecting. They weren't receiving what they believed God now owed them. How easy is it for, is it for us to have the same mentality? With the various struggles we can face from work difficulties to to health issues to various forms of prejudice based on the color of our skin or the passport that we hold. Where every day just can feel like another punch to the stomach of how things just don't seem to be fair. But we we keep going. How some people just seem to have it all too easy. And as you, as someone who is trusting in the Lord, just seems to have one thing after the other just knock you back. To go against you. How easy it is for us to look around and feel like we've kept out our end of the bargain. But God, you're just not coming to the party. This idea of the wicked prospering is not a new idea. It's an idea that is confusing and was discussed by Job. It was discussed in the Psalms. It was discussed in Ecclesiastes, in Jeremiah and Habakkuk. And here's the thing: these passages never really give an answer. They never give, really give an answer as to why the wicked prosper. But here's what we do know. As commentator Craig Blazing comments, "God in His providence blesses the wicked as well as the righteous as a testimony to himself." Matthew 5:45, so that you may know so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on, on the just and on the unjust. Blazing continues. Also, the righteous as well as the wicked suffer because of the fall. The book of Job adds to the dilemma of human suffering the extra dimensions of God's dealing with Satan. All of this makes it difficult, apart from known sin in one's life, to determine why a righteous person may suffer. And the truth is we may never know. We may never have answers in this life as to why things happen as they do. Why some people suffer and some people prosper. Why some people get cancer and others don't. Why some people get, have a heart attack young and leave behind a young family. Why someone can be just walking down the street and be taken out by a car. None of that just seems to be fair. As we think of these circumstances, friends, you might be sitting here and something like this may have happened to you. If that's you, if you're trying to process these things in your life, let me encourage you, come and talk to someone. Don't struggle alone. Don't try to make sense of these things alone. God has given us a community to come alongside. He has given us his word to reveal himself, to reveal who he is and why we can trust him. And while the passages, the passages that I messaged, uh, mentioned earlier don't necessarily give an answer to the problems discussed, here's what they do do. They give us a future perspective. They give us this future, this forward-looking hope. These texts remind us that God will come in judgment and that He will punish the wicked and establish His righteousness, His righteousness in His kingdom forever. So Job Chapter 21, verses 7 to 26, and 24, 1, 7, uh, verse 1 to 17, deal with the wicked prospering. Job 24, 22 to 24, and 27, 13 to 23, look to a future hope. Now I'm going to mention these texts, so, so write them down. I encourage you, go home today, read through them, look at them, use them as part of your quiet time this week. Be encouraged about who God is and how He works out His plans. Psalm 73, 1 to 14, we talk about the wicked. Psalm 73, 16 to 20 talks about the future hope. Ecclesiastes 8:14, the wicked. Ecclesiastes 8 12 and 13, just before that, we see the hope. Jeremiah 12, 1 to 4, we see the wicked prosper. Jeremiah 12, 7 to 17, we see the future hope. Habakkuk 1, the wicked. Habakkuk 2, verse 3, and 3, 2 to 19, we see the future hope. Scripture reminds us of our hope. It reminds us of who God is. It reminds us of His faithfulness. These passages that I've just mentioned, mentioned and many others point us to the faithful love of God. Remember the words that we considered way back in chapter 1. I have loved you, says the Lord. And I still do. They reminded the people to look forward to a coming day. They remind us to look forward to a coming day where we may be tempted to cry out, Where is the God of justice? We can take hope and have heart that there is one true living God who will come. That brings us to our second point the coming Lord. Rather than remaining focused on these faithless questioners, as uh, Blazing puts it, Malachi turns their attention to the future, but with a warning. Chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Behold. That word literally means, behold me. Look at me. Remember, this is the Lord of hosts that is speaking. Look to the Lord. Some have questioned who this messenger may be as Malachi never really gives the identity, perhaps an angel or or even the writer of this book. However, this messenger that will prepare the way in verse 1, interestingly, is not the same messenger of the covenant that is referred just a a few uh, words later in the same verse. But if you want to get an idea of who this first person is, we just need to flip our Bibles a few pages to the right, And open up in Matthew chapter 11, verses 7 to 10. This is Jesus speaking. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Jesus is referring to John the Baptist, the one who would prepare the way of the Lord. And this connects with Isaiah 40 verse 3, a voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. This messenger would prepare the way, prepare the coming for the Lord. He would be the forerunner, the forerunner who comes uh, to the, the forerunner to the one who would come in the second part of this verse. The messenger of the covenant. So when the preparations have been made, says Malachi, when these they've been made, the Lord will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight this is what the people have been waiting to hear. This is it. While there was continuing disappointment as the presence of the Lord had not appeared to have returned to the temple, this now seems to be what the people have been longing for, that God's about to give them what they want. The Lord will come suddenly. And in this moment, the joy and excitement, perhaps even a sense of relief, I mean, this must have been everything that was just going through the people's hearts, through their minds. but we see that in just the very next line, in the very next verse, that joy is short-lived. Not only was this sudden coming usually associated with something that is ominous, but look at verse 2. But who can endure the day of His coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. Who can endure? This phrase suggests an unpleasant or or painful experience. The second question, who can stand, borrows this this battle imagery, meaning who will be able to stand their ground when the Lord appears? Well, the suggestion is that no one will be able to stand. No one will be able to endure what is coming. But there is a purpose behind this. He is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. Both images carry with them this idea of purification. I remember growing up, we would go to this theme park in Johannesburg where we lived, called Gold Reef City. It was designed around the era of when gold uh, was discovered in Johannesburg, one of the biggest gold reefs anywhere in the world. And I loved going to this place, especially as I got older, where I could now finally go on the roller coasters and the other thrill rides. But before I was old enough, I had to go to the less exciting rides. I had to go and sit through the less exciting experiences, like gold smelting. I'll never forget, we were sitting at the back of this room. The guy who was explaining something about gold and and what was about to happen had lost my attention a while back. But he managed to quickly get it back on him as he opened the door to the furnace where they were going to put this massive gold brick in and melt it down. I mean, when I say brick, I mean an actual brick of gold. I was about 10 to 15 meters away And I remember suddenly being hit by this wall of heat that made walking out of Dubai airports in August feel like walking into a nice cool autumn breeze. I couldn't believe how hot it was. But that is exactly what is necessary when you need to melt gold or silver, when you need to burn up the impurities. But despite how hot the furnace was, Despite how it melted that gold down, it never destroyed that metal. In fact, at the end of the display of the, this whole thing, at, at, um, they would take the, the, the cooled brick, they would put it out on the table, and you could walk past and you could see this, this beautiful gold cleaned from all impurities. And they would actually uh, give a challenge that if you could pick that, uh, pick that brick up with two or three fingers, I can't remember what it was, you could actually take that brick home with you, which is pretty cool, until someone actually did it. See, this idea of purifying is reiterated with the mention of the fuller's soap. A fuller's job was to cleanse and whiten cloth. The soap was usually mixed with water in tubs used for, for stamping or beating cloth. Both of these processes Right? They, they, they highlight a degree of, of, purific, of, of, of purifying, of breaking down, of, of, of suffering, as it were, in order to get a desired outcome. The plan here from God is that through the suffering, He would fulfill His divine plan to remove impurities of character. My friends, this should comfort us. When we face trials, when we go through situations that may seem unfair or or unrelenting, when we are tempted to cry out at what seems to be unfairness by God, when we are tempted to cry out and ask, where is the God of justice? Let us take heart. Let us take courage because He loves His people. He still does. He is concerned with our holiness Through these circumstances, God is using them to refine us, to purify us. This is called sanctification. This verse shows us the concern that the Lord has for the holiness of His people. And we see that this process is going to produce something. As difficult as it may be, verse 3, He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. This process is going to bring about the transformation of the people. The priest's offerings will once again be done in righteousness. The people's offerings will be pleasing to the Lord once again. But this purifying process needs to happen first. I love how one commentator describes it. He says, The beauty of this picture is that the refiner looks into the open furnace or pot and knows that the process of purifying is complete. And the dross all burnt away when he can see his image plainly reflected in the molten metal. Chapter 3, verse 5. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who, who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages. The ones who oppress the widow and the fatherless against those who thrust aside the sojourner and did not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. What was going to be a purifying process for some was going to be judgment for others. This judgment that is being spoken about is, is, not, going to, is not just going to be poured out on the priest, but on the whole nation. And we remember last week we saw how the people had been pursuing foreign gods. They were committing all kinds of sin, being faithless towards one another. Now God is going to come near in judgment, consuming those who practice sorcery, committed adultery, those who bear false witness, who take advantage of the vulnerable and the foreigner and do not fear the Lord. All of these things were prohibited under the Mosaic law. This was God's answer to the question, where is the God of justice? Which again should be an encouragement to us. We've considered the idea of fairness a few times this morning, considering our own situations where there appears to be no justice. And yet God is saying that he will bring about justice. It will be sudden. It will be right. And this gave hope to the people. And this must give hope to us. Why? Because the same God who is speaking in this passage, speaking to the people through Malachi, this is the same God who is at work right now in our lives. Whatever situation you're facing, whatever you're going through, whatever you feel is unfair or unjust, the God who is holding out hope here is the same God who is holding out hope to you right now. He is the unchanging Lord. And that brings us to our third and final point, the unchanging Lord. Look at verses 6 and 7. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, How shall we return? As we get to this passage, we're faced very much with the character of God and and the character of man. God doesn't change, He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is patient, not treating us as our sins deserve, and yet He is a just God that will pour out His justice. His grace is abounding. And he continues to uphold the covenant they made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And just as we see that God hasn't changed, well, the reality is that Israel hasn't changed much either. Throughout their history, they have broken the covenant of the Lord. They have loved other gods. And as the text says, they have turned aside from the statutes of God. Once again, we need to be reminded of the very words at the start of this book. I have loved you, says the Lord. And remember that context there that gives us the understanding that not only does God love them now or then, but he still does. It's a continuing love. Return to me, says the Lord, and I will return to you. Friend, hear these words this morning. Hear what is being said. And hear these words being spoken to you. Return to me and I will return to you. No matter what you've done, no matter what you're going through, no matter where you are at this moment, God says, return to me. I don't know what you're facing right now. I don't know what sin you feel that you've done that is maybe leaving you feeling guilty and ashamed, broken, completely distant from God. Maybe it's affected your whole family. Whatever the case may be, friends, God is unchanging. Confess your sin. Confess to an elder. Confess to a community group leader. Confess to a friend that you are here with. But whatever it is, know that you can turn to the Lord and He will turn to you. Perhaps you're sitting here and you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Christ. You're perhaps thinking, well, you know, you hear these things, you're not as bad as these people that you've heard about. You're not an adulterer, right? You don't think you swear falsely. You don't oppress the lonely, the the vulnerable. In fact, you think you're a pretty upstanding person. But here's the thing. God's word paints a very different picture for us. Romans chapter 3 verse 10, citing Psalm 14 verses 1 to 3 and Psalm 53 tell us that no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And just a few verses later in Romans 3:23 we're told for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Friends, these verses highlight that we stand as an enemy of God. Our only hope is to turn from our sin, to repent and turn to the Lord, trust in the fact that He is unchanging, and that God has made a way for us to be reconciled to Himself. Well, it's not through keeping the law. Or perfectly obeying all of God's commands, He's made a way for us through one who did keep the law. In fact, He kept it perfectly. He, kept, he obeyed all of God's commands perfectly and gave Himself up as the perfect offering on our behalf. The Lord did come, came in the form of a man taking on flesh. Christ Jesus, He made a way for us to return to the Lord through His life, death, and resurrection. Friend, you can turn to the Lord now. Turn to Him and trust in what He has accomplished for you. Return to me, says the Lord. I will return to you. This offer of returning to the Lord was held out to the people. And once again, there doesn't seem to be any kind of willingness on their part. There seems to be almost a hint of ignorance. They still don't seem to understand the charges that have been brought up against them. They still don't need to see the the need of of repenting. And God holds out another charge against them. Verse 8, Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? (sighs) Just as we've seen before, there is another issue with their offerings. This time it's the fact that they weren't bringing offerings. We've we've seen them bring defiled offerings to the Lord, but now they're saying that they, they, they aren't even bringing certain offerings. But by bringing them, God is saying that These tithes and offerings here in Malachi was one specific way that the people could return to God. This keeping of the command around tithes and offerings was just as important as the other commands and ordinances that they were failing to keep. Verse 9, you are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. The people had not been paying their tithes. They had not been bringing their tithes, which was a tenth of what they had grown, what they had produced. These gifts, these offerings were meant to be a reminder that everything belonged to the Lord. Everything. And they were to give a tenth back in thankfulness and in worship for what they had received from Him. Yet they had failed to do so. Which God considered not only robbing Him, but held out that there were consequences to their actions. The whole land was cursed. There, nothing was growing. There, there, there didn't seem to be any rain. "'Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and therefore, thereby put me to the tests,' says the Lord of hosts. "'If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need,' I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. God lays down a challenge to them. He's saying, put me to the test. Bring what you're supposed to bring, as per the covenant. I will show that I am faithful to keep the covenant. God is calling the people to trust Him. How would they show that they trust Him? By giving Him what is due. Then they would be blessed and the nations would recognize that. So as we hear these words, how should we take, what should we take away from that? How should we consider this? Now the danger here would be to go down the line of, well, if we have enough faith, if we just keep sowing our seed, then God is going to bless us abundantly. That if we give more, more that we give, the more that we will receive. This is where the prosperity gospel gets it so wrong. And first thing we need to remember that this was part of God's command under the Mosaic Covenant. We are no longer under that covenant. We are no longer under the law, no longer needing to keep those commands in order to receive the blessings as God's people in the same way they would. Because our hope is now in Christ And what he has done, and our hope is in a future eternity when we will be with him forever. But one thing I will say as we consider this passage is this. Friends, are you trusting the Lord? Are you trusting him to provide for your needs? Are you trusting that he will be faithful? And does the use of your finances actually express that? We're reminded in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 that God loves a cheerful giver. So the question of do I give a tenth of what I earn to the church is less important than am I giving joyfully? Am I giving faithfully? Am I trusting the Lord? A tenth may be a good place to start, and you can kind of increase that as you go. There's a sense that it should stretch us, right? It should stretch us so that we're looking to the Lord for our provision. We're looking to Him to sustain us, not finding our security in our wealth. And that's a question we should be asking ourselves regularly. Where am I finding my security? Do I find it in the things that I have, in the size of my bank balance or my retirement fund? How do we know? What are ways that we can... Ask some of those questions and and find out if we're finding our security in our finances. I just want to give four quick things for for you to, to consider and assess. The first thing when it comes to are you trusting your finances is this you're worried when you don't have it. Second, you're hesitant or resistant to be generous. Three, you take on a promotion that will give you more money at the cost of other things, even though your current salary is enough. Four, you hide your spending habits from your spouse. And we'd be good to time and again ask these reflective questions, gauging how we view money. Are we finding our hope? Are we finding our trust in money? But these verses that we've been considering end with this incredible encouragement. It seems that there is a chance for the people to turn from their sin. God is saying, trust me. Test me. I will show you that I am faithful. Look what will happen when you turn to me. And he just outlines all those things that will happen. There will be a blessing to the nations. Well, the nations will see them as blessed. But then just as we think that there's this glimmer of hope, if they just do what God is asking them to do, then everything would be fine. They just need to trust the Lord. Maybe this is the moment where they would turn from their sin, that they would repent, they would return to the Lord. And then we get to our last three verses. 13 to 15. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping His charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test, God to the test and they escape. We almost seem to have gone full circle. We're right back where we started. The complaint that we saw from the people in chapter 2, verse 17, it's echoed here. God seems to be favoring the wicked. God seems to be blessing evildoers. God is being unfair. God is not just. These verses reveal so much about our human nature, where we have a strong inclination to determine what is fair, what is just based on our own perceptions, rather than what God has determined. We're reminded of this broken relationship that we have with God. And despite His offerings of how we can be restored to Him, there is nothing that we can do to bring about that restoration. He was holding it out for them. This is, this, this is it. Return to me. But they couldn't. Sin had separated too much which is why we need the one who would do that for us. We can argue that things are unfair and unjust, but in our sin against God, it would be fair and it would be just for Him to pour out His wrath, pour out His punishments on us. Instead, He poured it out on Christ. Friends, as we finish off today, while we can get caught up daily on the unfairnesses that we may face. Friends, let's walk away being reminded not only of the grace we have experienced, not only of the mercy that God has shown us, but that now through Christ, we can now be restored to God. That relationship can be restored where we don't look to the blessings of this life, we look to our future eternal blessings. We'll be in His presence forever. let us be faithful to live that out here, to encourage each other in these things as we look ahead, as we look to our future hope that God reminds us of. Let's do it for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you once again. <laughs> Lord, I feel the weight of this book in so many ways. I confess that I have been convicted in so many different ways as I've studied this, th- this text. I confess that it has uh, caused me to look to myself and repent where I need to repent. And I thank you, Lord, for the hope that is found in you. Lord, and I pray that that would be true of all of us, that we would not just walk away from this passage today and and go about our business, being like the man who looked at himself in the mirror and then walked away and forgot what he looked like, but Lord, that we would apply these truths to our lives. Lord, may may we be be quick to, to confess, may we be quick to return to you from the sins that we have committed. Father, draw us to Yourself. May we be reminded that the things that this life has to offer pale in comparison to who You are and what You hold out for us. And Lord, when we are tempted to feel discouraged or disheartened by the unfairness and atrocities that go on around us that we ourselves may face, Lord, may it cause us to fix our eyes to You knowing that one day we will spend an eternity in your presence, gazing upon you, proclaiming holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Oh, Father, may we be a church that runs this race, that encourages one another to this end, that loves one another, admonishes one another, pursues this that we have been thinking through today. We pray that this will all be done for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray.